The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Kia ora tata. this is Toby Manhai from Gone By Lunchtime. I hope you're having a lovely summer so far. This is one of a selection of reissues from our politics podcast, Gone By Lunchtime. What you're about to hear is from March when the Labour Party released a housing package to solve all the troubles in a beleaguered housing property market. The National Caucus was discussing fluoride. Uh, at the time, Judith Collins was the leader rather than Christopher Luxon, although we do talk a bit about Christopher Luxon in this podcast, as well as travel bubbles and Police 107, and we're blissfully unaware of the lockdown to come. Kia ora. Did you not get any of that? Did you not get any of that? That gossip. Respecting, respecting your, your privacy. Oh my God, lost podcast. forever. <laughs> no, so you missed all the bit about the nudity in the studio and the my, police. And, oh, uh, my deepest regrets, yeah. I was trying to protect your, uh, you know, you know, to protect your sources, protect your protect Nah, privacy. we don't care about the lost session. No, we don't. Just, okay. This is Gone by Lunchtime. My name is Toby Manhire. Good morning on Tuesday, the what, the March the 30th to Annabelle Lee Matha. Kia ora. Tēnā koe, tēnā kōrua, tēnā tātou, tēnā tātou e te ao whānui, te ao hurihuri. Kia ora rā. Covered everybody there. Yeah. And um, Morena Ben Thomas. Morena, uh, end of the tax year coming up, a special a special occasion. Yes. Um, if, if I've... If I've seen you in the last year, and you know, don't be surprised if you get an email from me asking for a receipt from like lunch we had or a, a surprise invoice for four hundred and fifty dollars yeah. of my time. Oh, I'd love that. Love a love a late invoice. Um, uh, thanks to Flick for keeping this podcast lights on. Thanks especially to members for being fantastic. And allowing us to do what we do. Thanks to Jonathan, who is making all of the technology and audio work for us. I kind of thought maybe we should just talk about the ship, the stuck ship. Do yeah, you, like, I'm down for that. I've maybe we should just do two now. solid hours on the ship in the Suez, the stuck. Do you think? Yeah. That's much more interesting than talking about I'm here for that. I've... <sighs> No, it'll like like the ship itself inexorably drifting into the side of the canal. <laughs> we we our, our podcast too will be blocked up by analogies of it to the National Party oh, yeah. or to New Zealand housing okay. policy. Okay, or, so will you, know, you do one? Will you do some you, so extended metaphors, extended stuck ship metaphors in your searing analysis? 
you, you, you'll just be digging away at the sides like a, a tiny bulldozer <laughs> try, trying to get back to nautical ideas. Have you been a bit obsessed with the ship, Annabelle? Or? I haven't had time to be as obsessed as I would like to be with mm. the ship. But I'm interested in it because my dad was a merchant seaman when I was a kid. He was a radio officer. So he actually right? went up the Suez is Canal that, in the right? 80s. Yeah. How many times did he get stuck? Um, I don't think he ever did, to be fair. Ah, Kiwis batting I've, above our weight on the world I know. stage. Yeah. I know it's sort of been done to death and, and there are sort of memes uh, everywhere, but... I feel like I feel one of the reasons I'm obsessed with it. Not not that I've been deep in the detail, but I keep on thinking about it. Like I I had a, I had a dream that um, Phoenix Foundation did a song about it, like, and I feel like there'll be lots of songs about it. But it's because I think there's um, it's like both this m- sort of macroeconomic globalization blah 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 thing about how one blockage can send the whole world's supply chains and the this advanced capitalist society into meltdown. But also, it's like you feel like, oh shit, I could have done that. Just like, oh, you know, just back your car into a bank by accident. But you know? why do you want to bring up another band though in front of Jonathan? Oh, so rude. Sorry, Jonathan. I didn't. Jonathan, will you be? Will you write a song about about the boat? About, about the There's plenty of current affairs to go around. I reckon we'll find something. But ever given is a very good name for it's a song. Extremely poetic. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Well, I'll write the lyrics and then I'll auction them off between. New Zealand's and see if I can raise $3. The the housing package, which had been much trailed, and the talking points were very clear because Jacinda Ardern said several thousand times, this is not a silver bullet, but it was designed to tilt the balance, and they were, they were pulling every lever they have. And when it was announced, I think it was, was it last Wednesday? Well, last, last Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Last Tuesday, Wednesday. Tuesday. Um, I remember looking at the releases that came through. And we're now, we're, it's now one week since the housing crisis was solved. Right. Uh, uh, and like looking at the, the list of stuff, it seemed underwhelming. And a lot of people said underwhelming. It did seem underwhelming. But I didn't think I, what I didn't, what I just didn't understand really <laughs> was what a big deal that interest deductibility mm. thing was. And, and so I, there was that response from, um, some of the landlord representatives and stuff saying it was crazy and bizarre and insane. And clearly that has been, I mean, I don't think it was a loophole, but it was clearly a function of the system that was being uh, whether exploited or, mm. or just used, taken advantage of by mm. people who had several several houses. I mean, to, in simple terms, that when all of the interest, which is already very low, a large part of that you were able to write off for tax purposes. So, but, but when you say interest is low, <clears throat> if you're a highly leveraged investor who's borrowed a lot of money, and we know from reporting from interest.co.nz that 40% of investor mortgages are paid mm. back interest only. Mm. So when you get to deduct a third of your interest as a tax expense, uh, or when you get to deduct your interest as a tax expense, that means you're only paying two-thirds of your whole mortgage, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So that that does obviously give investors like a huge advantage over owner-occupiers. Mm-hmm. And so this does really change the maths a, a, a little bit, you know, depending on, you know, for a $500,000 mortgage, it might mean another five grand a year for an investor. Now, if you're a law partner who, you know, pulls in a huge salary, has a couple of investment properties and 
but but can take that hit out of your considerable income that you'd otherwise be putting into sharesies or KiwiSaver or, or buying a small island nation, you would do that because the capital gains you'll get will outweigh you know the cost of um, yeah. the extra yeah. interest you're paying. And and as as Bernard Hickey pointed out uh, again on his podcast when the facts change, which is uh, now running, and if you're not already, everyone who listens to the podcast is intelligent and informed enough to already be on it. But if by some chance you've missed it, do follow it. It's um, a fantastic new podcast. But as Bernard has pointed out, the implicit, tacit, even maybe explicit guarantee that house prices would not <laughs> drop, that they were a particular a particular market, um, and combine that with those advantages for available for investors, is a very, it has, has been, I don't know if it still is, Annabelle, a, just a very rational thing for people to do with with their money. Yeah, but it's it's so bad for the economy, eh? Mm. Because you're not you're not helping create any new business, and all this talk about the incredible service that mum and dad landlords supply. Firstly, there's nothing nothing special about you being a, a mum or a dad, and you're not providing any special service. Like you didn't nine times out of ten, you didn't build the house. You're not there like smoothing down the pillows for the renters. There's actually nothing special about what you're doing. You're just holding up housing stock that could be, um, that could be being bought by by owner occupiers or first home buyers or whatever. So, I think we really need to start challenging this rhetoric about um, how we should all be grateful that landlords are out there buying up houses for people to rent because actually they're, they're the problem. Well, they're, they're a significant part of the problem. They're not the only yeah. part of the problem. But the other thing is, if they were investing their money into like startup businesses and all of that, that would be better for the economy overall. And 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 I guess that's the thing is that up to this point, the rational <laughs> when they look at the 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 options, the rational, the pure um, economic rational decision has been to put in houses, and what they're trying to do is provide some kind of shock to the system to make people reconsider that. And on a very uh, surface level, the fact that Andrew King and co are freaking out suggests that might work. Mm. Yeah, so we've heard from some landlords, you know, there was one old codger in the Herald who said that he owned 12 properties and he'd be selling one to clear the mortgages on all the others. And then ramping up the rent. Yeah, there were some that were threatening to identify the coldest day of the year and then look at their properties. Like, that's a real thing. The sense of entitlement and arrogance of some of those guys that speak out in the media is just brilliant. Duncan Garner had a, 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 a heart-wrenching tale of a friend of his um, who, was, who was so um, upset by this that he was going to up the rent by $135 a week on his... 40 properties. <laughs> you know, like the world's tiniest violin. And the, and the thing is, if you are highly leveraged on 40 properties, you will have a big bill that you you can't get any other way except uh, well, raising rent. No, you won't because it doesn't come, it doesn't, wouldn't kick in for four years. Oh, oh so, sure. You know, and yeah, yeah. When, when it takes effect. So, uh, you know, the earlier indications are that it will have. You know, it looks like it will have some effect in terms of freeing up some of that housing stock for owner occupiers. Um, 
So it's important to distinguish two things that the government were two problems the government was trying to address. First is lack of homes, which is the big problem in in New Zealand. Not enough houses for the number of people mm. who need to what, live. What they call the supply side. The supply side. Then you've got the demand side, which is uh, we're also a supply problem for first home buyers, which is that they're getting edged out of the market by investors who have these tax breaks, who have high equity mm. in all of their properties because of the crazy market. So the, the 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 interest deductibility only really addresses that for that second issue. It do, it doesn't mm. do anything to get any new homes mm. built. No. Where except that, except that the it doesn't apply to new builds because there was obviously an awareness that if you applied it also to new builds, then the people who were actually really developers would equally be hit. Well, and you what, want to encourage yeah. people to do to do. And, and there's mixed views on that. Actually, the most interest the the. The kind of most part of the most symbolic part of uh, the announcement was that in the documentation the government released, they said that there may be an exemption on new builds, right? But that they weren't sure, you know, that that wasn't in stone. At the same time, they said we're passing this law in October. It will be retrospective back to this week in March. But mm. but but we haven't decided yet whether mm. new builds will have an exemption, yeah, which yeah. is why we saw this um, news story on Friday about developers putting pa- uh, pushing pause on um, various developments, rent to build developments. Since then, the government has come out. David Parker and Grant Robertson have said new builds will be exempt, but incredibly untidy and a lot of uncertainty mm. there when you're talking about big retrospective changes. The other thing too is like, I mean, why wasn't this? Why didn't we make these changes? Three years ago, six years ago, Kiwi Builders. Well, 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 when, la- you know, when, um, when Labor got in, they should have yeah. started instituting some of, you know, some of these changes then. And it, it's a it's a start, but like you say, it doesn't address the issue of of the lack of supply and and also the huge focus on first home home buyers. Versus um, emergency housing and and um, and housing for low income families. I think you know if you really focus on emergency housing and and social housing, that also takes the heat out of the um, property market because it increases supply, and you don't have some of those most vulnerable family in the families in the country. You know, and market rentals. So there's got there better be pulling some rabbits out of the hat. It would take a long time for this stuff to filter through. I mean, having said that, and the 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 government would point out that they do have a pretty pretty seriously big um, public housing house building program underway, and you know. You can see some of that in, in the bits of Auckland that we live in. You know, there are, there are kāngahora um Yeah, uh, but then there's other up. issues too, like, you know, rural rural communities like in the far north places like Utakura where they're mm. literally living in third world conditions, um, you know, lack of water, dilapidated housing, and yet pl- paying um, the same rates as places like Kirikiri where there's been a massive lack of um, of investment in those types of communities. Labor has did put in a million dollars to help fix up some houses there, but you know a million do- dollars doesn't go very far, especially when you've got bureaucrats so drive, across driveway it. Driveway in Auckland. That's right. Um, so there was there was there was, there was also the Brightline test, which has been increased uh, from five to ten years. 
which is basically the yeah that, way that, that was probably the most expected change that was that was quite heavily trailed. Treasury had turned out had advised it to be increased to twenty years, which is I mean the bright line test, which is of course a way of just determining whether or not you pay 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 tax on your capital gain um, if you to try and stop the flipping of properties. But yeah, as clearly clearly part of the thinking behind that was a political calculation that if they had increased to 20 years, then it would be pretty much a capital gains tax by stealth and there had been an undertaking not to do that. Although Ben Grant Robertson was on the hook for and he he used the language that he was he what what what, what he was too definitive too he definitive said, when he answer. had an interview and at least one interview ruled out any changes to the bright line test ahead of the election yeah he was too definitive in that he said what he intended at the time <laughs> as, as opposed to uh, and look that's fine you know I I think you could make the case that a a twenty five percent increase in house prices since he said that you know since October. Is that that's enough of a ch- shifting environment yeah. that you can uh, you can improv a little? Exactly. I thought some of the media coverage around this was frankly ridiculous. Like we get months and months and years and years of the whole the government won't do anything to address the red hot housing market, and then as soon as they do, it's like just send a light, Grant Lloyd. It's like, bro, mm. we're in the middle of a global pandemic that's had all sorts of freaky impacts on our economy, would you rather they just continue to ignore that so that they weren't seen to be lying or backtracking? I don't know. Well, it's an, it's an interesting decision you take, isn't it? Like the fact that the measures that were introduced when everything went belly up with a, with the pandemic was in the face of warnings from Treasury and others that the house, house, housing market would fall by 10 to 15% or whatever it was. Mm. Turned out it went the other way mm. dramatically. So you can make a reasonable argument that the that that, that the world is different from the world. Absolutely. You know, the the, the the election campaign promises were made in. But that's a that's a kind of interesting political question now about whether or not the broken promises uh, is is so sacrosanct that you can you can mm. never go there. The, look, governments break promises. Key, Key said that he would only have revenue, he wouldn't raise taxes or give, no, he, he said he'd have revenue neutral tax cuts in about 2010. And he said he wouldn't raise GST as so. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and then he raised GST, lowered income rates, and it, was, it wasn't it was fiscally neutral. It cost an extra $1 or $2 billion mm-hmm. a year. But everyone was pretty happy with it, so they let it slide. And... I think same sort of situation here, um, if they can keep their voters happy with it. And to be fair, I think the capital gains thing, uh, the, the bright line test thing really is more in what sceptics might call the virtue signaling category. House price flipping is not our big problem right now. Um, because well, of low, because of low interest rates, because of you know, you're getting zero money in a term deposit, zero interest in a term deposit. Um, it's much more worthwhile for people to hang on to houses, get a rental stream and get capital gains than to divest. One of the problems with our housing market in terms of supply is that baby boomers are not selling their houses when they retire, which is what people expected them to do. Um, I mean, and look, look, not to labour the point too much, though, but the, the hypothesis of somebody who had a small amount, enough money for a deposit... Uh, could 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 uh, 
have deductible tax on a low interest rate, mm. as you the scenario you painted before, where you basically don't need to you don't need to chip away at the cap at the the equity at all. At the you can just you can just you can just ride the capital gain, buy that house, hold on to it for seven years, sell it for a sweet you know three hundred thousand dollars of cash. That that prospect with those two measures is much less appealing now. You know, isn't it? Yeah, I don't. I don't know that anyone sort of buys a property thinking they'll sell it in seven years. In Do any case, no. I mean, in 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 Auckland, you can make a you can make a, a seven hundred thousand dollar profit by holding on for three months if you bought in Grey Lynn. Yeah. Um, or you hold on for the long term and you you collect rents, you collect long term capital gains. And and look, you still. I mean, the, I mean, well, there, well, there will be people who you, sell. With the, 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 years, the other thing that's easily but, forgotten all of this is that you you only ever pay 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 tax on on, on the gain. It's a capital yes, gain. You know, yeah, when it's Rather than a penalty. Anyway, blah blah blah. The other thing That's all Richard oh no Richard. What, what's his name? David, David Kiyosaki's fault. Rich Dad, poor dad. Rich Dad, oh, poor dad. Everybody okay. read Rich yeah. Dad, Poor Dad yeah. in the nineties and decided to become landlords. Um that's absolutely right. They did burn that book. Burn it. Burn the book. The, they, the, the, the other interesting thing, yes. I, I had predicted that the government wouldn't do anything bold on housing. Um, but when the uh, regulatory impact statement came out about those two major ch- uh, changes, which is the interest deductibility and the uh, bright line test, there was no treasury advice about interest deductibility, mm. except uh, please hold off on this until we can mm. figure out what it might do. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think that implementing tax changes without having any idea what they will do is actually pretty bold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you, you do have to hand it to Grant Robertson in this case. Well, I mean, that's absolutely right. And um, Jeff Nightingale has an interesting piece that, that um, I read this morning about how it actually creates other potential, you know, with the, what, it, what it will do to people who are looking for other ways to get around uh, and what they can do in terms of their, their, their smart tax Tax lawyers and accountants getting getting around around that is is a, is potentially an, uh, a hazard. But at the same time, if the goal is just to kind of apply some defibrillation to the body, then maybe it did that. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, I'm all in favour of the government waging a war of psychological terror on boomer landlords. Yes. Um, in terms of what the actual effects of the policy will be, we, we don't really know. Uh, we saw on The the, uh, the Nation and on Q&A, Grant Robertson raising the spectre of rent controls mm. uh, nationwide <laughs> mm. if, if people didn't play ball. I mean, you know, we're really getting, it's, it's been said by a bunch of people, we're, we're getting into Pretty Muldoon territory, where the the where the second most senior minister in the government is just sort of going on TV and musing out loud about you know massive <laughs> well, government interventions. I mean, that was specifically in response to the landlords being particularly belligerent, wasn't it? So I mean, it, it, but but yeah, and Jacinda Ardern did mostly rule that out. But you make a good point. Just on one of your other passion projects, Ben, there was some supply side stuff in the package, specifically three point eight billion for infrastructure to try and push things through where councils... It didn't quite go the full way of shutting down all the councils in the country. Which is a pity because that $3.8 billion will largely, you know, unfortunately I think will largely be wasted because it will depend on councils wanting to, you know, zone land for new development and then put in that infrastructure which the government will help them pay for. We've seen that uh, local government is 
just terrible at this. Uh, local government is terrible at keeping shit from spewing in geysers onto the streets. Um, they are terrible at fluoridating water. They are terrible at pretty much anything you could think of. Um, it would have been much more encouraging. Um, Kainga Aura has just uh, become a consenting agency of its own, so it can take over you know, council consenting duties um, on its own developments. Um, the goal of the, of urban development authorities, which was a Phil Twyford and Nick's carrying on from Nick Smith initiative, is that Kaingawara or these urban development authorities will take over from council roles in private developments as well. And the sooner that gets up and running, the better. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Um... You mentioned fluoridation there, Ben. The story last night, a breaking story on News Hub presented by um, an emerging political reporter called Tover O'Brien was relating to a National Party caucus meeting at which Tover O'Brien reported there had been a vote on the, 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 the policy approach put forward by Judith Collins and her deputy Shane Ritty, which was to oppose moves to centralise decision making on fluoridation. And according to the report, the caucus voted against the leader's wishes. Mm. The, the caucus actually voted sensibly, which is incredibly exciting. But what I don't understand is what on earth was Shane Ritty doing not supporting that proposed legislation. It's curious as well because he fluid, 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 I mean, he's been good on fluoridation. That was one of the things that he emerged. Hmm. I can't remember the details of it. I'm honest, but okay, um, I mean, presumably the argument was that it was about control and centralised versus local control. Yeah, they thought it would be. They thought it would be considered overreach. Um, you know, for for the government to be putting people's putting fluoride in people's water, but perfectly acceptable apparently to have people screaming at women going into um, clinics for an abortion. So that's not overreach. Um, the It came after a, quite a reasonably good run for the opposition, Ben Thomas, um, making a certain amount of hay on trans-Tasman bubble, promises of announcements for announcements, and I'm not sure about and, the housing response. And some response. flailing on and, the, uh, the housing response from the government, uh, I think. Uh, and then quite good, and then sort of targeting the, the Mallard stuff. The But but this, we should say that Judith Collins has, um, on Twitter, rejected the version of events as described on News Hub, but this is kind of feels like going back to the stuff, I mean, 
irrespective of even the detail, the fact of the leaks, the no, multiple sources mm. is it's it must be a, incredibly an old record, disheartening right? for national. Um, you know, they they were getting a bit of a momentum, even if they mm. were not themselves mm. getting a lot of momentum. The yeah. government was struggling on a number of issues. Um, and remember, you know, Judith Collins doesn't have to be the most popular politician in the country. People don't have to love National with all their hearts. They just have to, you know, get ahead of Labour in the polls somehow. Um, Simon Bridges was not universally beloved when National was leading Labour at the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic. Um, but what they what they were was cohesive. <laughs> and the, this is taking us back to, you know, any of a number of situations in the past. David Cunliffe with Labour, um, you know, the Todd, Todd Muller's coup uh, or the Jamie, more, more likely the Jamie Lee Ross mm. ructions where, you know, somebody for their own personal gain or because they've got a grudge or whatever is is leaking to the media to unsettle the leader. And, and it's so counterproductive because in a lot of these cases, it's a result of sort of ego. You have a guy like Jamie Lee Ross who sort of thinks, well, I'm, I'm a big political star and I won botany on my own steam mm. and the leader is letting me down, so I'm going to undermine him and whatever happens to him or the party, I'll be fine. We saw in 2020 that no one in National can assume they have a safe seat anymore. They, they lost some very, very blue seats last year, um, and that was on the strength of the shambles the party was in. If this continues, you know, anyone in a safe seat, certainly the list MPs can't count on having a job in three years' time. Um, it's, it, it, it's embarrassing and risable behaviour. Did you catch Christopher Luxon's maiden speech? Anybody? Well, how could you not? Because he wait, was like... Wait. D- no, I just want to jump Whoa. in. I just need to jump in. Yeah, before it felt, I bef- sort of felt that. But before, before you even think of characterizing him as a Christian or referring to his belief in Jesus, just remember that's not all he is. <laughs> He's a lot of other things. He's, he's a CEO. He the he's CEO an environmentalist. Yeah. Um, Stop focusing on Jesus. Don't say the J word. Um, how could you not get his maiden speech? Because he retweeted the hell out of it all Did over it? Twitter. Oh my and God. I mean, it's hard to, to uh. not believe that this looks suspiciously like a leadership campaign Like a he's, launch, running, he's running moment. Did yeah, you see the video? Full quotes and everything. Full quotes, like beautiful photoshopped yeah, beautiful. picture quotes. Beautiful, suit looks beautiful in that photo. Like, it's perfect um, fit. So I feel, like, I feel like that, the, you know, a shot was fired over over Colin's bow last week. Colin's stuck ship in the sewers. She's in the sewers canal. and Uncle is coming up on a tugboat. On a on a big a bigger digger. Did did you guys see the video? No. On please. his Facebook page? Um, it is, I'm sorry, I'm just bringing it up now. Yeah. It's hard. It's got to scroll through all we'll just the, cut to music. the memes. Do we have some elevator music in here? Jonathan? Oh, wait, here it is. Edit, edit point. <clears throat> Can we gather around Toby's okay. mic? Why my mic? Okay, well, yeah, yeah. Go, All right, go. okay, this is good. This is good content. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is footage of Christopher Luxon walking in slow-mo. <laughs> on, on his way to film an early, uh, of what, an early 2000s music video? <laughs> wow. 
Oh no, Judith, you're finished. You're finished. <laughs> that is that is basically catnip for Middle New Zealand. <laughs> that's <is> incredible. <laughs> and you tell me that's not about like that. That is God moves in mysterious ways, and that is one of them. <laughs> God moves in unusual ways. Amen. Okay, come on, come on. Let's keep moving. Oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah. she's keep on calling rolling. a taxi. Don't get I stuck think. in the Do We can talk about the Trans-Tasman bubble very quickly. We had an announcement for an announcement. It's coming on the Tuesday after Easter. We'll get a date. I don't know. I'd like it. I mean, there's some concern that it maybe should have happened more quickly. At the same time, we've got a three-day lockdown in Brisbane now. Clearly, you do need to get all your ducks in a row, make sure you've got all those... You know, you know what happens when there's an outbreak in a particular place. Ben hasn't seen his parents for over a year, Annabelle. Can, can I tell you that Ben's parents are probably secretly relieved about that, but anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> Ben's parents, if you're listening, um, Ben was saying before the podcast that he would like to see you. The, uh, he was. I, I mean, we, we should have a travel bubble with... Australia, we should have a travel bubble with the Pacific Islands, we should have a travel bubble with the Cooks, we should probably have a travel bubble with Taiwan. Um, this sense of Kiwi exceptionalism that was very useful mm. when we were pulling together as the team of five million or whatever to eliminate the virus last year has kind of metastasized and turned into this belief we have that everywhere outside our borders is mishandling COVID incredibly, um, that the world is ablaze, that people are dying yeah. in the streets of mm. Tasmania, mm. That, <laughs> that Samoa is like, you know, everyone's wearing plague doctor masks to go outside. It's not true. There is yeah. no COVID in the Pacific Islands. We're making, we're making immigrant temporary workers stay in hotels where they're more likely to get COVID in MIQ <laughs> from, from other overseas travellers. Yeah. Um, um, it, it, it's just ridiculous. Um, you know, sure, sure, outbreaks will happen. Outbreaks happen over here. And and we, we lock down. We take care of them quickly. Uh, our contact tracing is good. M- most people who go over to Australia or most Australians who come over here will either have the wherewithal to sustain a three- to five-day lockdown or they'll be able to stay with family or friends that they're visiting after, you know, a year and a half away. It's just a hiding to nothing, isn't it? Like, it's one of those unwinnable issues because we either have a bubble and someone goes, somebody, you know, there's community transmission wherever it is, or we take COVID to the Pacific or something and it all turns to shit, or we continue not to have bubbles and be criticised and alienated and not able to see Ben's mum and all of that stuff. My position remains the same. I'm not talking to Australia at the moment. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, just over a week ago, Calvin Davis did a pretty sharp 180 turn on his previous position in relation to treatment at um, Auckland Women's Prison and women's prisons more generally, Annabelle, when he wrote this quite blistering letter to the to the Chief Executive of Corrections. This all, this all stemmed from the Mihi Bassett case and then a district court judge said that corrections behaviour was unacceptable and at that inhumane, point Calvin Davis... Inhumane, cruel, cruel degrading. degrading. Yeah. Uh, Calvin Davis at that point... Not good words. ...said that he was waiting to hear the other side, which is odd, given that was a ruling from a judge. Anyway, there was an investigation by the chief and inspector, And given that I the think. other side was given the opportunity and to they, speak to those allegations they, and, like, just fronted a whole lot of people that had, like, zero 
um, connection to it or understanding of what happened. And so the report from the Chief Inspector came through and Davis did a big heel turn on that. And mm. um, did, did, does, this, does this fix things up? Is this going in the right direction? What did you make of that? Well, I mean, it's going in the right direction in that the, the Minister has now acknowledged that, yes, there is a significant problem, but, um, but pretty hard to make cultural changes um, at places like corrections. I mean, only a couple of months ago, literally Waikiria was being burnt to the raised to the ground. Mm. Um, so, a move in the right direction at at snail's pace. It's been an interesting experience, I'm sure, for Calvin Davis, Ben Thomas, being running a, a department like that, where you've been such a strong critic from outside mm. and then you're running the, the a ministry that is has particular culture, has a particular you don't wanna you don't wanna you don't wanna necessarily hang hang out to dry. Um, but but he did he did I mean some of the some of the language in the letter was enough that you sort of I mean I remember I was reading it and going, Sheesh, this is like should the should the the corrections chief executive resign on this? This is like uh, you know, People being tortured failures. in our I prisons, mean, it's probably. It's pretty full on. Yeah, well, he's 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 already <laughs> got rid of um, what's your name from Oranga Tamariki? Mm. Well, Grania. she's departed. Um, <laughs> I yeah, it's it's a difficult one. You see how how easy it is for ministers to get captured by their officials, you know, to the extent where a judge can produce findings and the minister can go, well, I'll need to hear what my officials tell me about this. Um, You know, it is so important as a minister to ask the right questions, to hold people's feet to the fire, to make sure that you're getting all the, the proper and correct information. You know, Davis is really up against it. He's got corrections, which is just like a a long-running nest Mm. of dysfunction, you know, for decades now. Mm. He's got Oranga Tamariki, which, you know, technically has only been a nest of dysfunction for, you know, five years or three years. But before that was SIFS, which Mm. was just as dysfunctional or even worse. Um, Oranga Tamariki is making some progress, you know, about corrections. But, you know, you'd, you'd have to say for somebody who's not super comfortable in the public eye and for somebody who sometimes does struggle with sort of his command of detail, um, you know, Davis hasn't made life easy for himself with his portfolios. The thing is that when it comes to issues that he really cares about like this, he's a great communicator. I mean, when he went to Manus Island and all of that, yeah. it was really powerful stuff. And so... When he gets fire well, in his belly, he really yeah, goes, Yeah, right? he's amazing. Yeah. But why he has chosen to handle the Waikiria issue and the Mihi Bassett issue the way he has confounds me because he wins no friends anywhere Let's talk um, briefly about another minister who uh, faces, the, I guess, the risk of capture and has a difficult kind of juggling act is Porter Williams, who was um, made the, the, the minister for police at the, after the last election. And she's been quiet, I, I've, I've relatively quiet in the recent um, debates around the police, uh, much of it stemming from Police 107, the television programme. Was that, that was just a Luxon Christopher Luxon, yeah. He's okay. just trying to get on our podcast. <laughs> it's all Sorry, part of keeps, his, keeps his media up. strategy. Yeah. She said of the Police 107 stuff, I think she said, she didn't express a strong view, but she, she said she didn't like the program much. 
I mean, you have to think about that show. You'll uh, it's presented as like a, a snapshot into the daily lives of police but for the people who are on it nine times out of ten it's the worst moment of their life or the result of the worst decisions they've ever made or they're in crisis or trauma or they've just got a bit pissed mm. and mean, it's do, captured they... there for all time and when you google them years later it's still sitting there so like is that cool? And is it cool that the police get to have the ultimate say over how they're presented in the programme when the people who feature on it don't? Well, Seems an incredible power imbalance. They they do need to get releases, I think. The, well, I don't know if they do. You would assume so, Ben, but if yeah. you listen to that podcast running from cops... I'm not saying this is what happens on Police 10-7, but I don't know because none of us are privy to it. Often what happens is it's the police that ask them to sign the waivers and the people who appear on it are confused about what I, it's about or may not know their rights. Whether or not the people who are on it would people be able might to tell be the difference between a producer and who's exactly, in the car and hivers. And the, but the, I mean, the, the, so I don't want to cast aspersions, what, but just because people sign waivers doesn't mean that they're... That they're that they fully understand what they're consenting to. Well, the point you make is a reference to Tim McKinnell, who wrote on the spin-off on the back of some OIAs he did, which mm. found that uh, the sign-off on all material in it is uh, with the police. So mm. that is to say that... Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a propaganda vehicle. I mean, they, there's a full-time staff member devoted to Police 107, as far as there, or at least there was a few years ago. Um you know, it is definitely part of the police comms arm, you know, rather than a sort of warts and all mm. documentary. Mm. And the and the police would not consent to a warts and all documentary. Oh, so you no. kind of, you <laughs> know, maybe, maybe the hooey could get into a little bit of, um, you know. Warts and alling. Police. But, you know, the other thing too is a couple of weeks ago, Andrew Costa got like a his own opinion piece in the Herald paywalled. And it, it, to me, it just seems incredibly unfair when police get these sort of these massive platforms that they have control over to to convey their messages. When often the people who you know who they're talking about or who are impacted by the story don't have that same platform, just seems seems unfair. Seems inequitable. Yeah, with and the, perhaps unjust with with the police commissioner. Because they have operational independence from the minister and from the government, and you'll, that'll be the first thing that the minister and the government tell you when you ask them anything about police actions, it probably is, you know, it's probably not a bad idea to get the commissioner in the habit of, you know, trying to explain what they're doing, which I don't know if he did very well in his op-ed, um, which I think boiled down to if you, have, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear from random photographing. But... Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think there's anything bad with, you know, a sort of dialogue opening up. Yeah, but it's not a dialogue. It's a monologue. That's the point. Is well, that well, it's not like you're getting a challenging interview with someone. You're just mm. getting to, like, state your piece and basically compare young teenage Māori kids getting their photographs taken with, you know, the act of terrorism that occurred in Christchurch and the criticism that there wasn't enough police surveillance around it. So... Pretty long bow to draw, but anyway. I think um, we've 
hit our time here. Can we go out on that um, Luxor music again? Can you bring bring that up, yeah. Ben Thomas? We um, it's gone by lunchtime. Thanks to Flick. Thanks to members. Thanks, Jonathan Pierce, uh, coming to you live from the Suez Canal. Uh, this podcast is dedicated to Christopher Luxor. Got to scroll through all of the tweets again. Jesus, it was going so well. It was more like, a, music it was like a, an upbeat, a, an upbeat outro at last. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Fortunately, I am an audio editing genius. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of people will know this. <laughs> Podcast manager at the spin-off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our Mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at the spinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.